Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. Uh, so I wanted to, as we prepare for the message, we're going to share a song. And I wanted to introduce, uh, my name's Eric. I'm the, the next generation pastor here. Uh, but this is my sister, my kid sister, Roseanne. And she's here from Fort Worth. Yep. So we're, she's going to share a song this morning, but wanted to introduce it a little bit. But it's awesome to have her join us this morning. Thank you for having me. The song I'm going to sing is one that you've probably heard. Some of you, I'm guessing most of you will have heard it by Elvis Presley, um, unless you're under a certain age and then you don't know who that is. Um, Mahalia Jackson also sang it. Amber asked me if I would pray before. Um, this song is actually a prayer, so I think I will encourage you to let this be a prayer in your heart as I sing it. Um, I absolutely know that I'm not the only person in here who has been through a difficult time. And if we had time, I'm sure that we'd have an opportunity to hear so many stories of pain and hurt, um, but hopefully stories of recovery, maybe not yet, maybe in process. But um, the thing that I realized through the things that I went through was that sometimes I was sitting right where you guys were, and I was sitting with people that were not safe, and I didn't feel safe. And I didn't know what to do because this was supposed to be a safe place. And my home was supposed to be safe. My church was supposed to be safe. And I didn't feel that at all. And I don't know if anybody here feels that. If you're sitting next to someone that you don't feel safe with. If you're sitting in a circumstance in your life that you don't feel safe. And safe could mean a lot of things. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. The thing that I was able to cling to as I climbed through and out of the muck and the mire was that my heavenly father was safe. And that I did not lose hold of. I lost hold of a lot of other things. People that I thought were holding me up were gone. Things that I thought was gonna sustain me, gone. But I did feel safe in the arms of my savior. And sometimes I was walking with him. I haven't run with him in a long time. I think I've spent the last 15 years of my life just saying, I'm tired. I am so tired. Um, and sometimes I was crawling with him, and sometimes I was laying flat on my face, and he was dragging me. But he always has my hand, always. And so the prayer that I'm going to be singing that I want you to pray along if you can is, Precious Lord, take my hand. And it is a prayer that she knows me. <laughs> It is a prayer that I hope you can pray in your heart now, but if not, it's okay. Just know that when you're ready and when you feel it, and even if you can't get on your knees and crawl, all you have to do is be flat on your face and stick your hand up, and you will be safe. So precious Lord, take my hand is the prayer of my heart that I was able to pray when I couldn't pray anything else. So I hope it ministers to you. Precious Lord, Take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak, I am Precious Lord, lead 
Great. Well, there's your sermon for today. Everybody have a wonderful day. Oh, my gosh. Roseanne, thank you so much. Eric, thank you so much. Wow. What an amazing way to start this message. Um, <clears throat> quick disclaimer, I'm a little under the weather, and so if, uh, if I, my, my voice gets a little pitchier, if I need to Take a sip of water. Just forgive me. Have a little grace there. Um, <clears throat> uh, but my name is John Carroll. In case we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Hope Covenant. And a couple of weeks ago, Amber kicked off this series called I Don't Know What I Believe. And she said that more important than knowing what we believe is in whom we believe. And we looked at several verses from Paul's letter to his apprentice, Timothy, and this is what he wrote. He said, do not, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And there's a word that appears twice in this passage. And it's the topic that I want to focus on today. And this word is suffering. And the word appears uh, first in verse 8. Paul says, join me in suffering for the gospel. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. The Greek word for gospel is euanglion. It's kind of a funny word, euanglion. And it's literally translated as good news. So what part of suffering sounds like good news? Now, Paul could have said, hey, join me for prayer. Okay, that sounds like fun. Okay, or he could have said, join me for comfort. That sounds like fun too. Or join me for a cheeseburger and a cold beverage. That sounds really good. But he doesn't. And then in verse 11 and 12, Paul goes on to say, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. He basically repeats the call, this invitation to suffer for the gospel. And the reason he does this is to tell Timothy that suffering is a part of life. But it doesn't have to be the end of his life. God is still at work, and he can redeem your suffering. Paul says, you want to see the proof of God's grace in my life? Look at my wounds. Look at my bruises. Look at my scars. They are evidence of his suffering. And the reality is, we all have wounds. We all have scars. And sometimes, we doubt God's goodness or even God's existence because of our suffering. And I want to take a look at this passage, verses 11 and 12 again, and talk about this and that. Most people look at the gospel through the lens of suffering. Paul sees things differently because of whom he believes. He looks at suffering through the lens of the gospel. He says, I don't look at this gospel through that suffering. He says, I look at that suffering through this gospel. And when I do, and when I do, I can see the evidence of God's grace, God's redemptive activity in my life. And that really sets the stage for what I want to dive into today. The, the idea of faith and pain and suffering in God. In a book called The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, 
why do you not believe in God? My reply would have run like this. Look at the universe in which we live. By far, the greatest part of it is empty space, cold and dark. On earth, life is so arranged that all forms of it can live only by preying on one another. In higher forms of life, there appears a quality called consciousness, which enables creatures to suffer pain. The creatures cause pain by being born, live by inflicting pain, and in pain, they mostly die. Human beings also have reason, which enables them to foresee their pain, causing immense mental suffering. Reason also enables humans to inflict immensely more pain on each other and on the irrational creatures. This power that they have exploited to the full, their history is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. Furthermore, the universe will one day cease to be. Every race that comes into being in any part of the universe is doomed. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. By the way, happy Sunday. I didn't mean to bum you out with something this heavy, okay? But it's really an important question. Does the existence of suffering, pain, and evil in the world prove that God does not exist? It's a huge question in our day and in our world. And maybe for some folks here. Interestingly, rather than try to sweep this under the rug, the Bible itself is full of very direct expressions of anguish and confusion and rage about suffering and pain. The wisdom literature, the book of Job, and much of the Psalms and Ecclesiastes is more about this than anything else. The book of Job is all about suffering. Human beings are born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward, it says. Psalms, like Psalm 22, are all about this, where the psalmist says words that Jesus quoted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh my God, I cry out by day. You do not answer. I cry out by night. I'm not settled. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me. They shake their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. The Bible is full of this stuff. This stuff. Now, in the ancient world, people suffered. In fact, back then, people expected to suffer. In the ancient world, one out of every five children died before they were one-year-old. That was just the reality. In the ancient world, half of all children did not reach the age of 10. So frankly, they knew more about suffering than we do today. In the first century, there was a branch of Greek philosophy called Stoicism. And the Greek Stoics said, life is about developing the kind of character that can bear suffering without complaints. Just resign itself. And there was a Stoic by the name of Epictetus. 
And Epictetus wrote something like this. What harm is there while you were kissing your child at bed at night to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die. Now, if I was Epictetus's kid, I would not be really thrilled by that bedtime liturgy. But he just said, that's reality. That's the world in which we live. Parents loved and hurt and cried like we do. They were confused and angry. But it didn't cause them to think there is no God. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Pastor Tim Keller writes that what's different in our day is not that we suffer more, With technology, medicine, anesthesia, and so forth, we're actually in way better shape than anybody has ever been. What's different is we assume the universe should exist for our benefit. We assume that self, not faith, not God, not community, is the highest value. And that we're smart enough to figure the universe out. And really, we ought to be able to control it. So people assume in our day that the existence of suffering isn't just a horrible problem, but that it's proof God could not exist or that God isn't good. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to walk through some observations that don't explain why they're suffering the way it is right now, but that challenge the idea that faith in God is irrational due to the existence of pain and suffering. And so the first observation is this. The mere existence of pain does not prove the absence of love. The mere existence of pain does not prove the absence of love. We see this in everyday life all the time. A surgeon will allow pain to bring healing. Does the surgeon want to inflict pain? No. But there's good on the other side. A therapist will actually focus a client on sad memories to bring growth. Does the therapist want to inflict pain? No, but there's good on the other side. If you're a parent and your kid is being a noisy, selfish, irritating, whiny brat driving you crazy, you might discipline them. Do you want to inflict pain? You always scare me a little bit. (laughs) We all know about this as parents. Parenting and love and pain is a package deal. When our son Aiden, our firstborn, was a little baby, we took him to the doctor and he got his first shot. I'll never forget it. It was awful. Up until that moment, everything we did from when he first arrived was to protect him, to shield him, to comfort him, to take care of him. He trusted us. I felt so bad. We brought him to the doctor, and he got out this giant needle and shoved it into that tender pink little skin. And his eyes got really big, and he started to cry. And he looked right at me like, how could you do this to me? So I picked him up in my arms and I said, oh, honey, this was mommy's idea. I would never do this to you. (laughs) 
Now, the Bible does not teach that all pain and suffering is God disciplining somebody. Christians get kind of mixed up about this sometimes. There actually is, in another religion, a doctrine called karma. That is kind of built around the idea that if you're experiencing pain now, then it's probably retribution for something you've done in the past. Okay, That's not in the Bible. Karma is not Christian. And there's no simple formula about everybody getting good or suffering because they deserve it. In fact, Jesus says God causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Suffering comes to everybody. Good comes to everybody. But the existence of pain does not prove the absence of purpose or love. Second observation. The existence of evil is the result of the fall. It's not part of God's original creation. Okay? The existence of evil is the result of the fall. It's not part of God's original creation. This is part of the teachings of Christianity, of the Bible, that there is a way things are supposed to be. That's a really important idea. There's a way that things are supposed to be, and the way doesn't include pain and suffering and evil. The pain and suffering and evil came about because people are free and choose sin. C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, and free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of autonomy, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. And there was actually a movie about that idea some time ago called The Stepford Wives. Anybody ever see The Stepford Wives? It's a suburb where real-life wives actually get replaced by identical-looking but robot wives. Now think about this for a moment. If you're a husband, imagine this could actually happen. Would you want it? Would you want your real-life, challenging, sometimes difficult, flesh-and-blood wife replaced by a robotic version of herself who was always smiling, always cooking your favorite meals, always laughing at your favorite jokes, scheduling your favorite activities, doing whatever she needed to make you happy? Would you want that? No. The answer is no. <laughs> You're not doing yourself any favors by saying yes. Anyways. Anyway. This means people must have the freedom to choose, which is a good thing. It means there must be the freedom to choose, and that means the freedom to choose evil. Now, people sometimes wonder, couldn't God create a world where people are free to choose but would always choose good? No. You can't have it both ways. You can't have freedom and determinism where decisions are made for you. It's kind of like saying, couldn't God make a square circle? It's not a limitation on God. It's just the nature of logic. 
Third observation. If there is no God, why should we be outraged when bad things happen to people? Now, this is, I'm giving you a disclaimer. This is the trickiest observation to explain, so you're going to have to hang with me. We're going to do some mental gymnastics here. This is like very philosophical, okay? So if there is no God, why should we be outraged when bad things happen to people? That's a very important, but kind of a subtle point. And C.S. Lewis writes about this too. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. In other words, the argument against God based on pain and suffering is that if there's pain and suffering in the world, it would not be just. It wouldn't be right for God to make a world like that. But the whole notion of justice implies a higher standard. This is not just about my preference or your preference. If the world is nothing but a machine, just jiggling atoms, okay, where did this idea come from? Okay, where did this idea come from that there is a way things are supposed to be? That higher standard. In one of the great pieces of writing of the 20th century, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, written by Martin Luther King Jr., and if you've never read this, this is a really amazing piece, and I highly recommend you look into it. It's worth reading. Um, It's an amazing piece of moral and spiritual truth that he wrote while embracing suffering for the sake of God's justice. And there's an irony here because Paul's letter to Timothy was written from a jail cell. And MLK's letter to his friends was written from a jail cell too. This is part of what he writes. He's writing about how you know what a just law is. He says, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. You see, Martin Luther King Jr. is saying, if there was no higher law, there would be no way to tell what justice is. The whole civil rights movement, the whole movement for justice and racial reconciliation was built on the foundation of a higher law, of a just law rooted in God's law. Tim Keller writes that by contrast... When the German philosopher and atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche, heard about the lethal tidal wave in Indonesia, he responded, 200,000 people wiped out in a single stroke. How magnificent. Keller writes, as different as their views were, King and Nietzsche agreed on one point. If there is no God or higher divine law, then injustice is perfectly natural. So abandoning belief in God doesn't help with the problem of suffering at all. Fourth observation. In Jesus, we meet a God who will defeat suffering by suffering himself. In Jesus, we meet a God who will defeat suffering By suffering himself. And this is staggering. There is no other God like the God of Jesus. We could do a whole message just around the sufferings of Jesus. Born in a little manger, 
having to leave his home, flee infanticide, live in Egypt, face anti-Semitism there, live in a poor family, work as an obscure carpenter, go through ministry where he wept when his friend Lazarus died, where he wept over Jerusalem, where he was hungry, where he was thirsty, where he was tired, where he was in jail. When they cut him, he bled. They rejected him. His friends abandoned him. One of his disciples betrayed him. When they hung him, he died. He's called the man of sorrows. The writer of Hebrews says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent, meaning loud, cries and tears. Before this week, I never thought about Jesus' life being marked by loud cries and tears. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. A couple weeks ago, Amber told me about something that Mike Lemke said at a meeting here at our church. And it's kind of a fitting message for us today. So I invited Mike to share it with us, and we captured it on video uh, so let's go ahead and take a look. He is the gracious man that sits at the table and drinks coffee. I married to Cynthia, who often is at the keyboard on the praise team. We've been married for 38 years almost. And just one of the many blessings that God's given me pretty special gal. Cynthia and I have been involved in many different <clears throat> groups uh, here at, at Hope, uh, finance, the music, uh, leadership, properties. Recently, uh, we got into, or I got into uh, the men's group, and it's just, just been such a blessing to, to see to see the, the need, the desire, the, the, the wanting to be a part of something a little bit different than, than what they are in, these, the men are in. And it came up the other night at, at our crescendo meeting that uh, we're discussing the different seasons of our life. And, you know, it hit me as how it related to this, the men's group. You know, and the season of my life has been, for many years, has been spring. And spring is a time of renewal. To me, it's God's promise come to light. You know that. You know there is life every ever after, and and it starts the day you say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. We. Uh, talked about the seasons and I was asked a question and basically is why is it that spring is your choice? In, 2000, in 1981, you know, a month after Cynthia and I were married, my oldest child, my son, was killed in a car wreck. I do believe, and I did believe at the time that it was God calling on me. I have to admit that I didn't really respond for quite a while. But that desire, you know, kept nagging at me, in, in a sense, nagging at me. 
And it really came to fruition about six years ago when my second son died of stenosis. And uh, rather than rather than wallow in self-pity, oh, God gave me the desire to use his, his word, to use what he has given me, which I didn't know, was, was the desire to encourage, edify, and love my fellow man. And I have since gained nine or ten sons. You know, men in this church, you know, a generation younger than I, that I, I, just, I just adore. How is it that you are able to be in a season of spring in the midst of all the suffering? It's because I believe God gave me life for a purpose, and that purpose is not to mourn, you know, but to become <clears throat> but to become the, the person that he has designed me to be and that and to realize that he doesn't necessarily cause these things he just allows them to happen and how I view them is what makes the difference in me God has taught me to, to listen to his word, to understand what it is he's trying to tell me, and that, that my sufferings are minuscule compared to what his son's sufferings were. And if I look at life through my sufferings, you know, I'm doomed. If I look at life through Christ and his sufferings, you know, it's joy. Thanks, Mike. You know, the Apostle Paul and Mike Limke share the same lens. You know, they look at that suffering through this gospel. Mike lost two sons, but God provided nine, ten more. And I want to say that to anybody who's carrying a burden that's crushing you or that you've been hiding or living with all by yourself, you're not alone. Not here. I just want to say to all of us who are following Jesus, no matter how we think our lives are going, there's no suffering anywhere that isn't a part of our story. In Jesus, we meet a God who suffers with us. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to walk this road together and to carry one another's burdens. One last observation. This is why we do this, because of the hope that lies within us. The perspective of God, the reality of God on the other side of death will take your breath away. God is up to something we cannot even get our arms around. This comes up with the New Testament writers over and over again. This is a claim about reality you have to think about. You have to decide about. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Think about these words. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Put them on a scale, Paul says. Here's what we're going through right now. Here's what lies before us. This is so great that, by contrast, whatever this is can only be described as light and momentary. By the way, those are not the words of a comfortable suburbanite. Paul was whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, persecuted, ridiculed, opposed, arrested, imprisoned, executed, and he had nothing. And the description of all of that is light and momentary. For the sake of Jesus, for what lies before me, for an eternal weight of glory, light and momentary. This is a claim about how things are. And I wanted to show this in the most concrete way I could. This is the best way I could think of how to do it. There's a little video. It just takes a minute. And it's a little kid, and he's going down a ski jump for the first time. It scares him out of his wits. And there's this before and after contrast. And it's a little parable about what life is like on the other side. So let's take another look at the screen for just a moment. I'll be fine. Have fun. I'll do it. Well... Here goes something, I guess. Okay, you can do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump. You got it. Whoa, my ski's slipping off. Just remember, never snowplow, okay? No snowplows. Keep it straight, it'll be fine. Okay. You can do on the 20. Straight. Do you go faster on the end run? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Is it any steeper, do you think? Not same, much. Same steepness, it's just longer. Well, just longer. Just longer, just a bigger 20, that's all. Yep. Have it's fun. A bigger 20. Go ahead. You got that. I got it. <laughs> it's fine. You'll, you'll be fine. Okay. Here. The longer you wait, you'll be more scared. I. Go. That's the eternal weight of glory. Woohoo! It was just suspense at the top. That's all. One day, you're going to go down that jump. That's called death. And Jesus says, The one who trusts me, the one who believes in me, will never taste death. As soon as you say, Here we go, that's an eternal weight of glory. 
Now, when you're in the ski box on this side, where you are right now, you would love to be excused from all of the fear and all of the anxiety and all of the terror and all of the awfulness of it. But on the other side of the jump, Paul says, all that experience doesn't get erased, doesn't get removed, it gets redeemed. Paul is saying, the resurrected Jesus is saying, the redemption of all things throughout all eternity will be more glorious than you can possibly imagine. So whatever you're going through, don't you lose heart. You lose a child. You lose a spouse. Your heart is wrecked. You go through a divorce. You're depressed. You get fired. You're all alone. You feel guilty because of something you've done. You've been abused or you've abused somebody. Your health is gone. You're scared to death. To everybody who is suffering, you are not at the end of your run. We are still on this side of the jump. There is an eternal weight of glory that is waiting for you. And when it comes, and one day it will come, we will say to each other through all eternity, light and momentary, light and momentary. He redeemed it all. He was up to something so good and so enormous and we had no idea. But now we know. In the meantime, you are not alone. You are not alone. We gather together to love each other and carry our burdens. And if you've been carrying one, it would be a great day to just set it down. Would you bow your heads right now? Close your eyes. This is a time to pray for one another. People are carrying fear, a broken heart, a secret, a shame. Just give it to God and allow yourself to be loved by your neighbors. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you could just Maybe put your hand on the back of the person next to you or grab their hand or put an arm around their shoulder. There are some people here right now who are feeling really alone. There are some folks here right now whose hearts have been broken. There are some people here right now and maybe it's you. And it was all you could do to get yourself out of bed this morning and come here. Today we come to the man of sorrows. And it's a fitting image and a fitting time to do this. As we journey through the Lenten season, the 40-day period leading up to Easter. We bring all of our tears, all of our grief, all of our suffering, all of our disappointments to the foot of this great cross, the place of ultimate suffering 
that has become, by the grace of a suffering God, the place of ultimate hope. We don't seek comfort. We seek a cross. O Heavenly Father, great physician and good shepherd, crucified carpenter and risen Lord, will you visit every breaking heart right now with comfort and hope? Will you give to every man and every woman in this room the strength to endure whatever it is they have to bear? Would you make this church, God, a community where nobody hides and nobody lives in secret or in a dark corner, but there's light and love? Would you take their hand and lead them home? Until that day, God, when we are on the other side, and our arms are lifted in eternal triumph, and we embrace each other and you and say, light and momentary, light and momentary. We live, God, in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you came in this morning, you should have received a Lenten reflection card and this is a time and a space for you to reflect on uh, the scripture passage for today, which is located at the bottom. Maybe you want to reflect on something that you heard today in the message. And there's this giant white space here for you to just jot your thoughts. And if you're not ready to do that now, maybe you can tuck it in your Bible. Tuck it in your purse or in your pocket and just take it home. Maybe something will come to you today. But use this card to reflect on what God is saying to you in this moment.